Well, that's exciting. We are in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, nearing the end of the letter. Imagine people in North America. Uh, Most people wake up in the morning. Many will grab their smartphone. First thing they'll do is look at the news feed, business news, maybe some election results. Anyways, they look at the news of the day. Some people will already be thinking about their first Starbucks of the day. Others are thinking about maybe a workout and a healthy breakfast, a day of work ahead, and hopefully a bit of rest at the end. Life is lived with uh, a desire for, you know, self-awareness, good relationships, hard work, a disciplined life. If there are problems, well, maybe a person should just work smarter. Or if there are conflicts at home or in the workplace, well, let's just employ some good conflict resolution skills and we'll work it out. Spiritual realm is not even considered. For most people, what exists is the material world. We as men and women, we determine our, our destiny. If there is a God that exists, well, he doesn't really intervene in our lives. Maybe he has created the universe, and if he has, well, he's set us here, and now we make things happen. The question, of course, is, is there more going on? Imagine waking up in another part of the world. Some people, when they wake up, the first thing that they think of in the morning is, well, I need to make a sacrifice to the house idol. And so they go to the spirit house and they put out some food to the spirits. And as they live their day, their, their, their thoughts around the spiritual realm will actually determine what they eat, what they wear, how they do their business. The whole world is animated. They see spirits in the trees, in the plants, in the animals, in people, in the air, everywhere. Their worldview is animated, spirited. Life is this just ongoing attempt to try and work the spiritual realm in their favor and in the favor of the people that they love. Is that the correct way of seeing the world? What would the scriptures teach us? You know, how we see the world, it impacts how we live, the decisions we make. It shapes the way that we read the scriptures. And so when we read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, what do we actually hear? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Paul says, finally... We might read in conclusion or in the time remaining, in the time remaining between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, between the birth of Christ, what we will celebrate at Christmas and his second coming, we live in a time of spiritual battle. Paul wants us to be prepared. Military generals 
in the ancient world, they would make a passionate, emotional call to their soldiers prior to battle. And that's what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. It's a stirring conclusion to the whole book. He draws on truths from the whole letter in order to make this passionate call to battle. He wants the Ephesians to live awake, alert. You can hear the trumpet call. What kind of a call would we make? Maybe our call would sound more like the horn of a self-help manual. You know, good advice. Like, be proactive. Begin with the end in mind. Know where you're going in life. Put first things first. Prioritize. Manage your life well. Think win-win. Understand other people and then be understood by them. Work well with others. If you can synergize, do it. Sharpen your skills. Work at self-renewal. That's all good advice. But the question is, is there more going on? Or is it just this human material plane? What does Paul call us to? Paul's final call is for believers to stand firm. He belts out to this call three times. He says, stand, be strong, stand firm. Why? Why the call? Well, look at the language in verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what's the nature of our enemy? It's a critical question. Paul just assumes the existence of spiritual powers. He doesn't argue for them. He believes that a spiritual battle is raging. Now, the Ephesians are reading this letter, and they too assume the existence of spiritual powers. You'll remember that the goddess Artemis, her temple, had dominated the landscape of Ephesus. Many of the Ephesians were involved in the cult of worship to her. In fact, she was the most worshipped goddess in Ephesus and across Asia Minor. Paul, when he talks about this idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says that people that participate are actually drinking from the cup of demons. He understands the worship to be demonic. Ephesians chapter 9, or sorry, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 talks about the birth of the church in Ephesus. And as people come to faith in Christ... They renounce their ritualistic practices. They destroy their idols. They burn their books of magic. Turns into a riot in Ephesus. But people realize that they're actually walking away from a kingdom of darkness where spiritual power is at work and walking into the kingdom of Jesus. In Ephesus as well, there were some Jewish exorcists and they thought that they could expel demons in the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. And what happens is that the demon-possessed person overtakes them and they run away naked and wounded. And so for the Ephesians, no need to argue for the existence of evil spiritual powers. For them, this is a reality. Why does Paul make this call? Perhaps they have been paralyzed by fear. Maybe there's a need for some adjustments in the way that they see things so that they understand who Jesus is and who they are in Christ. 
Observe the language Paul uses to describe these spiritual powers. In verse 11, he talks about the devil, names him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul talks about the prince of the power of the air who is at work influencing the course of this world. The motivation for Paul's strong call to stand firm is the nature of our spiritual enemy. The nature of our spiritual enemy and his schemes. That's the motivation behind Paul's call. We need to be aware of the power and the prowess of our enemy. Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world. In Acts, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul just piles up the language. He talks about rulers and authorities. He's talking about their right and power to act. He talks about cosmic powers over this present darkness. Again, highlighting their worldwide influence. They're to be taken seriously. So the first point about our enemy is that he is powerful. Paul says we war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The same language that is used for demons in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When Jesus expels demons. The same language. What's their characteristic? Well, they're evil. They are by nature wicked. They stand in opposition to God. Darkness is their natural habitat. They flee from the light of God's presence. According to Scripture, this is in 1 John, the devil has sinned from the beginning. Demons have no code of honor. They are unscrupulous. No moral principles. Our enemy is evil. And he usually does not come with head-on assaults or frontal attack. Paul talks about him being crafty, wily. It's like a wolf that follows a herd waiting for a moment of weakness. Paul talks about the enemy having schemes, strategies, tactical shrewdness. So he's cunning. He's powerful, he is evil, and he is cunning. Jesus says there's absolutely no truth in the devil. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Paul says he will appear as an angel of light. So for Paul, it's very clear in Ephesians that the human struggle, it is not just a a conflict on the material plane or a conflict between people. There's actually something spiritual going on. There's a conflict between those who are aligned with Christ and the kingdom of light and the devil and the powers of darkness. And as believers, we need to be aware of it. Paul says that we wrestle. The imagery comes from an armored soldier trained for battle, an expert wrestler who would often be in close combat with an opponent, a cunning opponent. And there was a need to wrestle in hand-to-hand combat. That's the language that is used. Only, in our case, the battle is not physical. It is a spiritual conflict. And so how do we, believers, human beings in Jesus, wrestle with evil, powerful, cunning spiritual beings? How would we ever win that battle? Some believe that in the universe... There is the power of good, God, the forces of good. And then there is the devil and the powers of evil. And that they are kind of equal in strength. There's this eternal conflict. 
And we as humans, we are somehow caught in between, torn by the good and the evil, in the spiritual realm, in human society, in our own souls. This constant tugging in one direction or the other. And some are not sure if good will triumph. How could we be sure? And so you see this drama played out in the movie industry, especially in horror films, even in Disney movies, the the movies that we watch as children. This constant conflict between good and evil. This, of course, is one of the devil's schemes. He's a liar. He thrives on deception. He would love to have us think that he is equal in power to God in presence, in influence. This is one of his primary strategies. He deceives through false teaching. He thrives on half-truth. He would love to have people think that he actually is very, very powerful. Another way that he deceives us in North America is to get us to think that he actually doesn't exist. Some theologians, as they've read through Ephesians chapter 6, over the last century, they have tried to reinterpret it and make it more fashionable for North Americans. And so when they think about the rulers and the authorities, they say, well, these rulers and authorities, they're actually uh, government agencies, uh, multinational corporations, uh, the corrupt judicial system. Uh, the, the, the philosophies, the traditions, the, the religions of man, that's what Ephesians 6 is talking about. Well, undoubtedly, the enemy, the devil, may be at work in movements that affect human life, like Nazism or ISIS in our day. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the existence of powerful, evil, cunning, spiritual beings that we are to be aware of. John Stott has written, he, the devil, is at his wiliest, his craftiest, when he persuades people that he does not exist. Uh, Gilles Lapouge, a French journalist, writing in Le Monde, he says, hey, the French denied the existence of the devil and he came crashing through the back door and took over. Perhaps this is one of our Canadian blind spots. Even as Christians, sometimes we affirm in our doctrine that, yeah, the devil and demons, they exist, but we live as if they don't. (laughs) Peter Kreeft, a theologian and philosopher from Boston College, I remember him saying, hey, if you don't believe in demons, then Jesus was insane. (laughs) Why would he say that? So categorically. Well, Jesus assumes their existence and confronts them more than any other in the scriptures. And he calls his disciples to do the same. If we take anything seriously in Ephesians, we have to take chapter 6 seriously as well. What are the devil's schemes? How does he operate in our lives? Well, we've already talked about deception. Another scheme is to encourage Relational tension. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, that when we're in that place of unforgiveness, when there is bitterness, wrath, anger, lingering in our hearts, the devil has a foothold. He names him. We actually give a foothold to our enemy. 
If the enemy can keep us in that place of unforgiveness, we remain paralyzed. The enemy will always encourage the building of walls between spouses, between parents and children, between ethnic groups. He thrives on division, on separation. He will encourage slander. That's his name, the devil. It means slanderer. He's an accuser. And if he can get us to slander each other, to accuse one another, we're falling prey to his scheme. Another one of his schemes is to encourage pride and rebellion. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says that the prince of the power of air, of the air, he's active in the sons of disobedience. He will encourage rebellion on every level. If he can get us to think that we can live life well and go against the created order at the same time, he will. If we think that we can live a sexually impure life and live well, he'll encourage that. That's falling to his scheme. Or questioning the roles of men and women in marriage. Or the submission of children to parents. If he can get us to go against the God-ordained parameters around life, he will. He encourages rebellion. How do we know when we're vulnerable to attack, when we're falling prey or susceptible to attack, to a scheme of the enemy. Often we see it in our thought life. We're confused. Confused about who God is, confused about who we are. Our lives are filled with doubt. We're unsure about our identity in Jesus. And when we're in this place, we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. We're self-absorbed. Often when we're in this kind of place, we'll just say, well, actually, I'm just kind of working through some issues. We won't contemplate the fact that the enemy may actually be attacking us. We won't come to the conclusion that we should actually get on our knees and pray and seek to be set free. Our emotional life sees, serves as a, a warning system. We're anxious, we're worrisome, worrisome. So many people live lives full of anxiety in our day. And how often do we remember that the enemy is present to attack and encourage anxiety and worry and hopelessness and despair, feelings of rejection. He loves it when we're immobilized by fear, when we don't realize that we actually have authority over the evil one and Jesus has power over all things. When we're looking for more independence, we're walking away from intimate communion with God. We want distance from people that God has placed in our lives. It may be a spouse, it may be a child, a parent. We just want to walk away and our hearts become hard and calloused. And so often we just think, well, this is just something I'm, I'm dealing with. We don't remember that we have an enemy that is encouraging us to walk in this direction. Oh, I just got some stuff I need to work through. Maybe a little bit of counsel. I'm experiencing some emotional 
distressed. Some relationships are broken. Eh, I think I can work through this. We don't realize that we've come under the influence of the enemy and we don't stand. How would Paul counsel us to wrestle with the schemes of the devil? Well, look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The foundation for Paul's call to stand firm is the mighty power of the Lord Jesus. It's not our strength. It's the strength of our Savior, Jesus. We're not told to attack the enemy. We're told to stand in the territory that Christ has conquered for us. We're not told to try to figure out the enemy. Well, who are those rulers? Who are the authorities? Who are the cosmic powers? Who might the spiritual forces be? I remember living in a city where believers were gathering to try to discern the nature of the spiritual power that was over our city. And after a long time of discernment, they came to the conclusion that it was a dragon. Wow, what a surprise. You would think it was Mickey Mouse. I don't mean to make light, but the scriptures don't encourage us to exercise in this kind of discernment. You see, we're playing into the enemy's schemes when we do that. He wants us to focus on him and to forget about Jesus. Paul calls the believers to stand. Well, how can we possibly stand against evil, powerful, cunning, spiritual beings? How could we ever stand? Well, we stand in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We live all of life under his reign. When we think about these things, we begin to understand Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in uh, chapter 1. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 1 verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the source of our strength is the Lord himself. According to Ephesians 1, Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. He now sits exalted at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things. He has won the victory. He is inherently powerful, all-powerful. He shares that attribute with no one. And so when in our minds we begin to attribute power, unnecessary power, to the devil, we are being deceived. Colossians says, He has disarmed the ruler and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is ruling over all things, not the devil. And he is the head of the church. We are in his hands and nothing can remove us from his grip. 
Our source of strength is our union with him. And so as Paul draws his letter to a close, he draws on all that he has taught about the gospel in the letter to the Ephesians. What does that mean for us? How do we apply it to our lives when we are in the midst of a raging spiritual storm? Well, let's just remember. God has blessed, if we are in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen from before the foundation of the world for holiness in his presence. We will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so if the battle is raging, we need to stand in this truth. Come what may, God will accomplish his purposes in our lives. We've been predestined for adoption in his family. We are sons and daughters of the king. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's the gift of God. We have no need to work for our salvation. Christ won the victory. He has saved us. He paid the price for our sin. And so no need to wallow in those feelings of guilt and shame. Price for our salvation has been paid. We're God's treasured possession. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for redemption. Our destiny is secure. We're rooted in Christ's love, and that love is beyond anything that we can imagine. We're loved. We're accepted. We're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, ruling with him. He's alive within us. You know, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul talks about the strength and the power and the might that raised Christ from the dead. The same language is used in chapter 6, verse 10, when he talks about us being strong. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive within us to enable us, to encourage us, to equip us, to stand. So no need for hopelessness. We can actually walk into those good works that God has created us for. We can walk into the purposes of God. No need for despair. No reason to fall into the enemy's schemes. We can read the word of God and have our minds renewed. If we're in relational conflict, then we can forgive because God has, by his grace, forgiven us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we forgive so that we will not be outwitted by the devil's schemes. We just won't stay there in that place of unforgiveness because we know we're falling to the devil's scheme and so we forgive, we extend grace so that we might walk free. We do not want the enemy to gain a foothold in our hearts or in the hearts of others. We walk in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. We walk in love with wisdom. Speaking the truth to each other. We walk away from sexual immorality because we know that life is not there. No, we walk into the presence of God and commune with him and lay hold of the life that he has for us. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and experience the deep joy of what it means to be in Jesus. We walk in love. We walk with wisdom. We stand. How do we stand? Look at verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Withstand in the evil day. 
In Ephesians 5.16, Paul talks about the whole age being evil from the first coming of Christ to the second. And so we live within this reality where spiritual powers are at work. And there are evil days. There are days when we feel the onslaught of the, onslaught of the enemy more than in other days. You'll remember that Jesus was tempted by the devil. And then he left, waiting for an opportune time. In other words, the devil would return. And our experience is similar. There are days when we come under a special attack of the enemy. We feel a special pressure. And so Paul says, stay on the alert. Stand strong. Lewis Sperry Schaefer has written, As pilgrims we walk, as witnesses we go, as contenders we run, and as fighters we stand. To stand means to resist, to be unwavering, to be firmly established in our convictions, our trust in Jesus and our understanding of the gospel. Paul, he paints a picture of soldiers standing firm in critical positions on the battlefield. They're standing in territory that has been conquered by Christ. The Apostle James uses similar language in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you stand, if you resist, he has to flee. Of course, you don't stand in your own power. You stand in the mighty power of Jesus, having humbled yourself before God. How are we protected from the enemy's onslaught? Well, we put on the armor. Paul uses the language of taking up. It's the way that soldiers would prepare themselves just before battle, putting on the armor, getting ready for the fight. The means to stand is to put on the whole armor of God. Whose armor is it? Well, it's God's. If we go to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 59, we see that the Lord is actually wearing the armor that we are to put on in Ephesians chapter 6. And so God is making available to us the armor of the Lord. We'll walk through each piece of armor next week. Do we know how to put on the armor of God? Do we know how to take up the pieces and stand? Next weekend, we'll look at that in detail. The good news this morning is that we, as Christian believers, we are more than able to stand in the spiritual battle. More than able to stand in the face of spiritual battle. No reason to fear. No reason to shrink back. No matter how evil the day, we are standing in territory that Christ has conquered. The devil and his demons, Paul would have us be aware of the fact that they are powerful, evil, and cunning. He would have us be aware of the truth that there is a spiritual battle raging. But the devil and his demons are not all powerful. They are not all knowing. They are not all present. The Lord is. And the Lord, he is reigning over all things, now and forever. And if we put on his armor, we stand in a place of strength, not weakness. We stand in the reality of the gospel as God's people. We stand united in his love. We walk in purity and wisdom. And when we do that, we demonstrate to the powers of the air, Ephesians 3.10. We demonstrate to angels and demons the wisdom of God and the truth that one day all things will be united in Christ and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord over all things. Amen? Amen.
We're going to go to just a moment of prayer in a minute. But I just want to stop and say something to those who may not have entrusted their lives to Jesus. Maybe you are here and you live under a cloud of oppression or confusion, kind of like the clouds that have covered the lower mainland over the last two months. And it's just hard for you to see. It's hard for you to live with hope. You have never come to an understanding of the love of Jesus. Well, the Father sent Jesus so that you might be set free. The good news is that you can be set free. That that, that stirring in your heart, there's a drawing to the Lord. It's from the Holy Spirit. Respond to it. God is asking you to turn away from a life of separation from him, from a life of independence to him. The Lord is inviting you to to receive him as your Savior and Lord. And Jesus has for you a gift of forgiveness. If you repent and turn to him, he is present to forgive, to free, to share his love with you, to send his Holy Spirit to live within you, to empower you to live in a new way, with hope, with joy, and with love. And so I want to pray with you this morning as well. And may you surrender your heart to Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. So Jesus, we thank you that you are reigning over all things, that you are at the right hand of the Father. And we thank you that we as your sons and daughters can just rest in your care. That we can live this day, go into this week, and come what may, we can stand in you and the truth of your word. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, come to an understanding of who we are in you, that we would learn to stand, that we would learn to take up the armor that you so freely offer to us that we would resist the enemy and that we would walk boldly and courageously and share your love with all that come across our path. And I pray for those here, Jesus, that don't know you. And I just pray that they would pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to save me. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus out of love for me. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and paying the penalty for my sin, for taking my sin upon yourself. Lord, I don't even deserve to be here to be praying, but you're drawing me to yourself by your Spirit, and I just ask that you would forgive me, that you would enter my life, be my Lord and Savior. I receive your Holy Spirit, and I choose to follow you. Teach me, Lord, by your Spirit. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.